Coming up this hour, a protest about schools in Wheaton, pastoral discouragement during COVID-19, and then we're joined by Jim Dennison to talk about his new book, Respectfully, I Disagree. You're listening to The Common Good. Hello, friends. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us on this Wednesday afternoon. Hey, as a reminder, find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. There you can find interviews and articles that we have talked about, even some things we haven't talked about. We would love to get your feedback there. Uh, that's at the Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. Uh, get us online at 1160hope.com and get our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review. Thank you for those of you who have done that. Ian, a little bit of inside baseball. Uh, Usually I find great joy in calling today hump day, but uh, our executive producer kind of mocked me on Twitter today, so I'm not doing it. I'm just calling it Wednesday today, man. Happy Wednesday today. Don't don't let a tweet control who you are, Brian. I am. I am. That is concerning. Hi, those of you who like when I yell hump day, it's over. It's over. (laughs) How are you today, bud? How are you? It's kind of cold outside today. It's our it's our weather forecast. I went out in shorts and a t-shirt today, not even thinking it might be cold. But uh, how else are you today? <laughs> how else am I today? Those weren't attributes describing how I am. Those were describing how you were. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. Then how are you today? <laughs> I'm fine. We're excited coming up here in a little bit. We're going to be joined by Jim Dennison. He's the founder of the Dennison Forum, and he has a new book, very timely book that's coming out September 15th called Respectfully, I Disagree. But first, I want to talk a little bit about COVID, COVID-19. There is still a pandemic going on, I believe, later this week. I can't believe this, but it's like six months since everything kind of shut down and uh, that is just why in some ways that feels like, wow, it's been six months. And in some ways it feels like, wow, it's only been six months. Um, but there was a protest that I want to talk about in Wheaton, kind of just up the street from me. Uh, there was a protest yesterday as parents and students from across the western suburbs who've begun remote learning uh, gathered in Wheaton to demand a return to the classroom and to sports. And it, it's an impressive. It was a couple thousand people at Wheaton's Memorial Park, uh, and they came from far away as school districts in Mokina, Orland Park. We read here in the Daily Herald, Western Springs and Huntley. Uh, and, and some of the parents said any parent could tell you that what's going on right now is not good for kids. And what struck me, Ian, is that I think if now if we went back to school, there'd be an equal number of parents probably gathering to be like, we should just be remote learning. It just highlights for me uh, all the disagreements that's going on, even about how we should be living right now. And uh, I don't know. I don't know if you have a thought on this, but it feels like the disagreements are more right now, not less that it we're kind of growing in our disagreements about how we should be living right now. Don't you feel that way? I do not feel that way. No. You don't. Why not? <laughs> I don't. I don't think we disagree any more now than we always have. I think probably it's intensified. We're more vocal yeah. about those things. But yeah, I, I don't think there's any more or less disagreement now than there was a year ago or five years ago. I think intensifies feels like I just meet it around COVID right now, and I might feel it because my kids just started remote learning, and everyone's up in arms oh, yeah. about it right now. I mean, I think that, for the first, I think for the first month or so, it was still so new that all of us were just trying to get our bearings. But that, again, it doesn't really. Maybe that makes me 
more melancholy than I'd like to admit. It doesn't surprise me, though, that people have strong opinions about yeah, work yeah. and recreation and education. I, to me, that anytime I see that dividing line, I'm like, yeah, that's that's about what I expected. So I wanted to I, I was just thinking about this the other day and I saw this is from about a week or two ago. And I saw a clip going around Twitter that I wanted to play here because here I think it um, encapsulates what I think is one of the issues going on right now. This is a guy by the name of Dr. Rob Davidson. He's an ER physician. He also ran for Congress. He's discussing on CNN with Anderson Cooper. He's having a discussion about the Republican National Convention and President Trump's speech where there weren't a lot of masks or social distancing. And also the March on Washington that happened, the protests, the march, and all that happened. I want you to hear what he has to say. Let's listen to him. I catch this thing eventually. Let's talk about that with Dr. Rob Davidson. He's an emergency room physician, the executive director of the Committee to Protect Medicare. Doctor, I'm wondering what you thought of, of the scene at, at the White House where there weren't many masks. You also point out the protests today, the, a lot of people wearing masks, not social distancing, though, obviously not... Uh, not what it should be. Yeah, I was very concerned about the White House event last night. 1,500 people packed shoulder to shoulder. The head of the White House Coronavirus Task Force in attendance without a mask with his family, his elderly mother without a mask. And it's it's concerning. Uh, we know people weren't tested. Only people in direct contact with President Trump had testing done. So I think we're going to see cases come out of that. And it's just modeling bad behavior. Now, when we juxtapose that to what's happening in Washington, D.C. right now, uh, people are mostly wearing masks. Now, true, there is social distancing issues. However, this is a public health crisis. They are marching against systemic racism has taken so many lives in this country throughout our history. If you're born black in this country in 2017, you have a three and a half year lower life expectancy than if you're born white. If you're a young black man, you have a one in 1000 chance of being shot by police three times more than if you're born white. So I just think that when you're marching against a public health emergency, I think you do every risk mitigation procedure you can. Uh, but we understand that we have to do the risk benefit analysis. And those folks are there doing something very important today. You know, we, we're uh, someone, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, at the White House was saying. Uh... So that was Rob Davidson right there. You know, and the reason I wanted to play that was for this. He said something that I found um I guess surprising from an ER doctor, but also disheartening. And it's when he was talking about the, the March on Washington, which I thought was a great thing. I'm glad the March on Washington happened. Uh, but he said, uh, everybody needs to make their own value judgments when it comes to what they're going to do, uh, and the risks they're going to take during COVID-19 right now. And I heard that and I was like, but what about if my value judgment is church? What if my value judgment is school? What if my value judgment is no matter? Does that bother you or worry you at all when you hear a doctor and somebody on the show to talk about, hey, we've got to be vigilant here, say, but in certain points, we need to take our own, we need to make value judgments and go about doing what we think might be more valuable than social distancing or masks or whatever else. I mean, don't you think we're all making value judgments? I do, but I think that's part of the part of the frustration since the start of this. And I guess to hear a doctor who deals with viruses and stuff say, uh, hey, we need to make value judgments. He basically said the March on Washington was more important, uh, but other things are not. And again, this isn't about the March on Washington or protests or whatever else. But I think if we even have doctors saying, hey, make value judgments, some things are more important than others. 
uh, that just opens up Pandora's box, I think, to John MacArthur talking about church, to uh, people protesting about school and whatever else. And we're either just going to live that way where we're all just going, hey, make your own call or we're going to have some sort of consistent messaging. And I guess what I wanted to just get to by the end of this is just say it increasingly feels like we're all just making our own call now. And we probably just have to be OK with that until the government comes in and says, hey, we're shutting back down or whatever else. I just was bothered. Maybe you weren't bothered. I was just so bothered when I heard him say we got to just make our own value judgments. Well, I mean, it it raises a couple of interesting ethical questions. I mean, I think for someone I know plenty of people that the value judgment they've made is we're not leaving our house. We're only going to Instacart. We're not. No one leaves at all because of either my conviction or a pre-existing condition or whatever. Uh, where it does get tricky and probably where I get the most frustrated is when people want to, <laughs> they'll talk about, I'll do whatever I want. Jesus will protect me. And you're like, well, that's not, I don't know that that theologically checks out necessarily. Um, I, th- I think there's an interaction when Jesus is tempted in the desert that actually maybe would say something other than that. But I, I do think that there, it's an interesting moral dilemma because apart from, like you're saying, a, a mandate from the government, we, we are just simply asking people, hey, be mindful. To me, I'm much more interested in appealing to the case of the Christ followers. Like, hey, for on behalf yep. of the neighbor, even mm. if you think masks are silly, foolish, and not helping at all, if, if we find out a year from now that that's right, that they didn't make a difference at all, uh, I would still feel good about making that decision on behalf of not even – the physical safety, but the mental safety of the person that may be prone to anxiety or fear or worry or or whatever else it is. Like to me, I'm going to go above and beyond for the sake of the other, even if my own conviction thinks like, "Ah, I don't know that's that big a deal. And I think that to me is an important shift in thinking for the Christ follower to not, I'm going to do whatever I want because it's my right. Well, I think the the tradition of, of Christianity has looked much different than that, you know, since the beginning. Absolutely. So this isn't a new topic here during COVID-19, but we'd love to know what you think. Go to the Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. Coming up next, we're going to talk to Jim Dennison, author of a new book coming out soon called Respectfully, I Disagree. Jim's going to join us for the next two segments here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for so much for joining us today. And as Ian and I often say here on the show, uh, we love when we get to talk to interesting people and to have guests. And with that in mind, uh, we are joined by Jim Dennison. Jim, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, Brian, I'm so glad to be on with you today. Thanks for the privilege. Absolutely. It's our privilege, Jim. And I, why don't you just begin by introducing yourself any way you see fit to our audience? You bet. Yeah, I'm in Dallas, Texas. Uh, what I do is basically called cultural apologetics, the idea of speaking biblical truth to cultural issues. My PhD is in philosophy. I've taught philosophy, religion in four seminaries and pastored four churches in Texas and Atlanta. And for the last uh, 12 years, I've led a ministry, Denison Forum, uh, websites, denisonforum.org, do a daily article based on that day's news that we send out to about 270,000 subscribers, have a total social reach of about 1.8 million, then do a lot of white books, uh, white papers and books and such as well. Basic point is to try to help Christians to think biblically about cultural issues so we can use our influence more effectively for Christ. And that's what this conversation is all about today and why I'm so glad to be on with you. Well, based on that introduction, um, what do I have to do to get you to be on our show every day then? Is there a, <laughs> is there a button I push or someone I can bribe? Because Absolutely. that you, what you just described is really in a lot of ways our heartbeat for the show. And you have a new book 
called Respectfully, I Disagree. We're going to kind of take a deep dive, but would you give us sort of the 30,000 foot perspective on that book first? You bet, Ian. And thank you for the privilege of doing this with you. I, I could move to Chicago. We could work a deal here. You know, <laughs> Wrigley is, I think, the best place to watch a baseball game in the world, I, I will say. And so uh, even though we've got a new stadium down here, it's kind of not the same. So, But we digress. Yeah, the point of the book is to help us think really about civility as Christians in a very un- uncivil day. What I'm really kind of hoping to do is help Christians use their social media platforms, their influence in this very divisive, very vitriolic kind of day in such a way that we'll be glad on the other side of election that we did. We want to preserve our witness now for then. We want to be light in the dark now. We want to be those people speaking the truth in love so that we have a witness not only now, but on the other side of the election that honors the Lord. So it's really kind of a call to civility. It talks about the the need for civility. It talks about the person of civility, how to be led by the Holy Spirit to manifest the fruit of the Spirit. Then it looks at the practice of civility as we talk about how to disagree agreeably, how to deal with uh, cancel culture, how to deal with kind of the challenging issues of the day. So, again, the whole point is to try to equip Christians to be civil and therefore reflect the grace of Jesus. Hmm, Sounds fascinating. I'm wondering if, uh, Jim, would you say that our culture, so just in general, is increasingly uncivil, so more uncivil? And and then I'd love to hear from you, what role do you think social media is playing in a lack of civility within our culture? Yeah, thanks, Brian. I think it's on a couple of levels in terms of the increase of civility in the culture today. On the one side, we're seeing something happening right now that I think is unprecedented, certainly in my observation. And that is that we're at a place now where we're believing that the other side is evil, that the other side is dangerous, that the other side must not only be opposed, but must be canceled. That's where the cancel culture thing is coming from. We're seeing on two sides that the Republicans with increasing severity are saying that of Democrats and Democrats of Republicans. I saw a survey the other day that had the smallest percentage ever of the two parties willing to allow their offspring to date someone of the other party. Wow. Because we're at a place where you're not just wrong, but you're dangerous to society and your positions must therefore be opposed on a level of vehemence that I think probably is on some level um, unprecedented. The social media aspect of that comes in, at least in part, because I can do everything I just said anonymously. I can say horrible things about you without saying them to you. I can say things beside the behind the protection of the digital wall and all of that. And so I can very quickly in a moment through a video or through something that I tweet or I say kind of go viral with some kind of really vehement vitriolic sort of statement that tries to cancel you, that tries to oppose you, because I can say that I'm doing that actually to save the country, to save our future, to to save our democracy. And there's a level of vehemence in that that I think is unprecedented. You know, I saw a spiritual director years ago do something that uh, I mirrored a bit today. I posted a side-by-side photo of Donald Trump and Joe Biden, and then beneath those photos, a picture of them when they were children. And I just simply said, uh, both of these men are made imago Dei, in the image mm-hmm. of God. And I just thought it was important that we remember that. And the comment section, you would not believe, Jim, uh, <laughs> is exactly exactly what you were saying. I'm curious, do you, do you think Christians stand a chance to help change or influence culture? And if so, what what are some ways that we should and can go about that? Yeah, thanks. And that's really where discouragement comes into this thing, you know. So some years ago, I heard a story, kind of a little parable. The devil's having a garage sale and all of his tools are out. They're priced and marked and all of that. So over here is anger and hatred and lust and murder and all of that. And they've got labels and prices and all that. Well, at the end of the table of the devil's garage sale is this one tool that's more worn than any other It has no label, but the highest price of all. Someone asked the devil what it was. He says, it's discouragement. They ask, why is it priced so high? And Satan said, because no one knows it's mine. 
Hmm. I think the enemy wants to use what's happening in these days to cause Christians to retreat, to keep the salt in the salt shaker, to keep the light under the basket, to pull back from society at the very time when society needs us the most. So if I could speak a word of encouragement, it really would come out of Jesus' metaphor in Matthew 5, that we're the salt of the earth and the light of the world. doesn't take much salt to change the flavor of the food. doesn't take much light to be visible in the dark. In fact, the darker the room, the more obvious the light. Some years ago, I was in Carlsbad Caverns on one of those tours down there. And at one point, they have you sit down and then they have you turn off your flashlights. This was back before we had flashlights on cell phones and all that. And it was so pitch black. Couldn't even see the hand in front of my face. Then the tour guide turned on his flashlight, and we all were instantly drew, drawn to that light. No matter where you were looking in the cave, no matter what you were thinking about, when the light came on, you couldn't help see the light, be drawn to the light. Hmm. The good news is it doesn't take much light in the dark, and the darker the room, the more powerful the light. Hmm. Jim, what would you say to the person who says, you know, uh, these are life and death issues, especially when it comes to salvation and the gospel, maybe civility. Sometimes we can't be civil. Sometimes we have to be argumentative. Uh, how would you talk to that person about the importance of civility? Yeah, thank you. It's speaking the truth in love out of Ephesians 4.15. There are times when we absolutely have to confront sin. You think of Jesus with the Pharisees, you think of Nathan with David, you think of Moses with Pharaoh. I'm not suggesting that we be anything but strong and bold in our beliefs that, according to 1 Peter 3, that we're always ready to make a defense for the hope that's in us. But we do so with gentleness and respect. What we have to remember is that lost people act like lost people. I did the same thing. I remember so well at the age of 15 when I came to faith in Christ, I remember what it was like to be lost. I remember what it was like to be afraid to go to bed at night because I might wake up in hell. I absolutely remember that. Scripture says that the natural man doesn't understand the things of God. So even when we have to stand up strongly and boldly for truth, it's important to remember these are not our enemies. Even though they may think of themselves that way, even though they may act that way toward us, if we'll stand boldly for truth but in a spirit of grace— then we'll manifest the spirit of Jesus. And quite frankly, the more severely they oppose us, the greater the opportunity to demonstrate the love of Jesus in return. Hmm. That other voice you hear there is Jim Dennison. Uh, he is the founder of the Dennison Forum. Uh, he also has a new book coming out on September the 15th called Respectfully I Disagree. You can find out more at denisonforum.org. That's denisonforum.org. And we are thrilled that Jim is going to join us for a second segment as we continue to discuss the importance of civility, especially in the midst of a culture that is growing less and less civil as we move towards this election. We're going to have that conversation with Jim and more coming up next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks again for joining us today. And we're joined for a second segment by Jim Dennison. Jim is the founder of the Dennison uh, Forum. He also has a book coming out called Respectfully, I Disagree, which debuts on September the 15th. And so, Jim, I, I want to hone in a little bit more. People might not know this. We have a presidential election coming up here in a couple months. I've heard uh, that. I read something like, about that just today. Yeah, thank <laughs> there you. There you go. And with that, it feels like the tension on social media around dinner tables in, in churches is just rising and rising. And so I, I guess I would ask you, how would you, especially for Christ followers out there listening, how would you uh, encourage them 
uh, as we move towards this election and how they interact with one another, how they interact with coworkers and family? What are some words of advice you'd give to people? Yeah, thank you. The first thought that comes to me is Matthew eighteen fifteen, where Jesus says that if your brother sins against you, you have to go to him. I'm not allowed to talk about someone until I talk to them. I can't say about you what I don't say to you. Mm-hmm. Imagine a world in which everybody did that. Imagine a world in which we applied that to the president and those running through the presidency, to, to our friends and those that are opposed to us, to celebrities, to sports figures, where we always made certain that what we said about people, we'd be happy to say to them. If we start with that, that'll keep us out of the slander and the libel and the accusations and the negativity and the animosity that is so much dominating, unfortunately, the discourse of the day. And so if we can start there. If we can just decide that we're going to say about people what we would say to them. Then the second thing, and I know this is going to sound somewhat naive, it's pretty simple, but it's something that I have to remember every single day. I have to start every day by asking the Holy Spirit, it's it's Ephesians 5.18, ask the Holy Spirit to fill me, to control me, to empower me, to speak to me and through me, to ask him, even right now be authoring my thoughts and and be speaking through me in this conversation. So if we could in every opportunity and the more conflicted, the more we need to do this, just mm-hmm. kind of breathe a prayer and say, Lord, speak to me. Lord, give me your spirit. Give me your attitude. Give me your thoughts. Manifest your fruit, your love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Do all of that in me and through me so that you can accomplish your purpose in my life. If we'll pray for that and ask for that, then we can make the kind of difference that the Holy Spirit can make through us. That's really good, Jim. I'm wondering, would you say, is it is it ever appropriate, is there ever a time for the Christ follower to forego civility? I've never been asked that question. That's a terrific question. <laughs> I'm thinking even depending on how you define civility, I want to say the answer absolutely is no. <laughs> then no matter where you are and no matter what you're up against and no matter how strong You need to be in your words. I would say even the apostles in Acts chapter 5, when they said to the Sanhedrin, we must serve God rather than men, they said it in a civil way. Right. Mm. They said it in a respectful way. Even as they're speaking of and to these very, you could say, enemies of the gospel, the very men who crucified Jesus. You think of Romans 13 and of 1 Peter 2 and what Peter and Paul said of the very leaders who would eventually have them executed as followers. So certainly there are times you have to choose Christ over Caesar. But even when you do that, I think you can do that in a respectful spirit, in a respectful voice that, again, understands they're not the enemy. Satan's really the enemy. These people are being uh, in some ways being uh, deceived and misled. And Hmm. if we could see them that way and know that we owe them the grace that we've received, then perhaps we can have the right spirit even in that conflicted relationship. That's good. That's good. That's good. Jim, I'm wondering, we've talked a lot about the need for us to be civil to others. Uh, how, how would you suggest we respond when other people uh, show a lack of civility towards us? Well, I'll tell you the way we should respond, I think. I'd love to tell you this is what I always do. And <laughs> just follow my example, and I'm perfect at this. Boy, I'd love to tell you that. I, my wife would love for me to tell you that as well. But, uh, <laughs> but the way I think we should respond is to, is to reframe this and see this challenge as an opportunity. Again, the darker the room, the more obvious the light. So when someone is persecuting me, if I'll do what Jesus said and pray for those who are persecuting me, and if I'll respond to their antagonism in a spirit of love, that will make clear the difference Jesus makes in my life. I'm thinking back years ago in the second church I ever pastored, a very large church out in West Texas. I hadn't been there very long and got to know a, a woman in the church who was dying of cancer. It was just a horrible thing and a long protracted disease. And I was visiting with her one time and I asked her what the hardest part of all this was. And she said it was all the people that told her if she would just repent of her sin, she'd be healed. Mm. 
Mm. And ask her how she responded to that. And she said, well, the only way you can is to love them because they especially need to be loved. Mm. And I've not forgotten her saying that. Mm. She manifested the spirit of Christ in the very place of opposition that would be so hard in the flesh to do that. But I've never forget the impact that's made on me because she did that. So again, the more we're opposed when we respond by speaking the truth in love, the difference we show Jesus makes in us. So I want to make sure to make time to ask you about Denison Forum as well, because I'm, I'm, I'm even just scrolling through some of the topics you tackle, everything from voting to suicide to common sense. Can you give us a little taste of what, what might people expect when they go there and what sort of your hope and vision for Denison Forum in general? Uh, Ian, thank you very much for that. The goal is to speak biblical truth to cultural issues, seeking to empower and equip Christians to use their influence to make a difference in the culture for Christ. Hmm. And so you never know what the topic's going to be. It just depends on what's in the news, what's out there that seems to be getting interest that I could find a way to speak to. I've already written the article for tomorrow. I'll get up tomorrow morning about four in the morning and I'll finish it and usually update it based on the news, that sort of thing. But if I go with what I have right now for tomorrow's daily article, it starts, for instance, with a shark that killed a surfer off of a protected beach in Australia. Mm-hmm. And from there, we pivot to an article about a dentist in New York City seeing an epidemic of cracked teeth during the pandemic. Then my third story is about how guitar sales are booming and what that says about where we are in the pandemic. Then to try to tie all of that together with a Forbes webinar I was in recently on digital transformation stocks and trying to make essentially the point that in the midst of all that we're facing in these days, what we need most, the culture can't give. And that's a pivot over to the relationship we can have with God as our shepherd. That's out of Psalm 80 and how we can share what we've received. So that's essentially tomorrow's article. No idea. Well, I kind of know what I'll write on for Friday because it's the anniversary of 9-11 and the six-month anniversary of the start, official start of the pandemic. So wow. I'm sure I'll do something, obviously, about that on Friday. But typically, I just don't know what's going to be in the news that I want to speak to and write about. So get up every morning and finish that article. And uh, about 900 words. It's all free. All our digital resources are free. Uh, then we send that out to our email subscribers, out to our social platforms as well. And it's also at the website, denisonforum.org. That's where people can get to the white papers, the website content, the social content, and that's where they can find our books as well. That's fantastic. That's great. Jim, uh, last question. We're so excited. We're really grateful that you've joined us for these two segments. Really uh, grateful for your time. But I just want to ask kind of big picture. You've, you know, pastor, uh, you write, you're, you're engaged with the church. And I would just ask you this in the midst of an election season and in the midst of a pandemic, are you hopeful uh, for the church? Are you hopeful uh, of, of for the days coming here in the future for the church? Yeah, Brian, what a great question. What a foundational question. On a uh, human level, you'd say no, I think. You'd look at the discouragement of the polls that are out there, the surveys, uh, more than half of millennial evangelicals who don't believe that evangelism is appropriate anymore. They see that as a uh, as a violating of tolerance and those sorts of things. You look at some of the numbers of church attendance, especially in mainstream, but even in some of the evangelical uh, denominational direction and all of that. So you look in those terms and you would think, well, man, that the, the trend is not possible. The trajectory is not positive. But on the other side, you look around at what God is doing in the world right now. There's a fifth great awakening happening in the nations. I travel a lot in the Muslim world. I've been to Israel more than 30 times over the years. And I can tell you, talking to Muslim missionaries, they say more Muslims have come to Christ in the last 15 years than the previous 15 centuries. Many after seeing visions and dreams of Jesus. There's an awakening happening in China. There's an awakening happening in Brazil. Every place people are making God their king, they're experiencing this awakening. In our culture, he's a hobby. In the Bible, he's a king. If we make him our king, 
then we join what he's doing in the kingdom. And there's always hope there. Wow. Jim, thank you for ending that way. Again, this is Jim Dennison. He's the founder of Dennison Forum. You can find out more at Dennison. That's D-E-N-I-S-O-N, DennisonForum.org. And also his new book, Respectfully, I Disagree, debuts on September the 15th. You can find that here at the Dennison Forum, and I'm sure all sorts of other places. Jim, this was really enjoyable. We really appreciate it. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, Brian and Ian, I'm so honored to be with you today. God bless you both. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for agreeing to be on the show tomorrow as well. (laughs) I'll be here. I'm I'm ready. (laughs) Wonderful. Wonderful. That was Jim Dennison. Uh, We're grateful that he joined us. You're listening to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks so much for joining us today. As a reminder, you can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. There you can find articles, uh, interviews we've done. Uh, you can find all sorts of stuff there. Interact with other listeners there. Same at Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. Uh, find our shows online at 1160hope.com and get our podcast. Wherever it is you get your podcast, subscribe, rate, review. If you just missed the interview we did with Jim Dennison, uh, you could go pick that up at our podcast later today. So uh, all sorts of places to find us. Alexa. Uh, as Ian used to say, you could probably just step into your backyard and yell, play the common good, and the trees are going to play it. Does that still work, Ian? I think that might still work. I don't think I've ever said any of those words in that order. <laughs> you kind of said that you one. You just time. used the phrase, as Ian used to say, just you willy-nilly. Did, you did say that, uh, that one time. I believe you said, just go out into the back. <laughs> well, the nice yell. thing is, Brian, all of these conversations have been recorded, so we could verify I'm gonna find whether – knock yourself out. Can't wait. I'm going to find it. Uh, and so, hey, by the way, any uh, special holidays today? Anything that will uh, that will intrigue us by the by way of holiday today? Yeah, today is uh, Care Bears Share Your Care Day. For real. Care Bears Share Your Care Day. Yep. It's also National Teddy Bear Day, which feels like they go together. They're overcrowding the day a little bit. And National Wiener Schnitzel Day. I am. Uh, I'm gonna. I went to a German restaurant once with somebody and had Wiener Schnitzel and stuff. Did not enjoy it. I did not enjoy German food. Are you? Are you? Uh, would Would you enjoy celebrating National Wiener Schnitzel Day? I, I sure would, Brian. And uh, I'm disappointed, but not surprised by uh, your cuisine palate once more. <laughs> Chicken nuggets, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but we, all right. we all know. We know. Uh, so John Tyson. John Tyson is a uh, author and pastor. And he out of uh, out in New York. And so he wrote a tweet the other day on September the 6th, a couple days ago that caught my eye. And I just want I thought it would be interesting to have a conversation about. I think he he talks about specifically about pastors. So I want to go down that road. But I also think uh, it's not hard to jump off of this and go. I think a lot of people and a lot of different professions are feeling this way. But let me read it. And then, you know, I just want to know if you think he's right. He says this. Almost every pastor I talk to is deeply discouraged, overwhelmed, and having serious doubts about longevity in ministry. Ministry is hard at the best of times, but these are excruciating days for leaders. Unnecessary criticism could do irreparable damage right now, so be kind. And then he tweeted again, by the way, I'm grateful for a supernatural grace and doing pretty well, all things considered. So what do you think about that tweet from John Tyson? Well, now I'm feeling bad about making fun of your disdain for German food. 
I <laughs> that would fit under the category of unnecessary criticism. I will. I it mean, might have been necessary. Yes, yeah, that's true. <laughs> Jokes aside, though, like this is this can be a real area of struggle for me because I, by nature, am pretty sarcastic. There's probably not a whole lot of weeks that go by where I can't think of one interaction where you're like, Ian, you didn't need to say that, man. That wasn't kind or that what you know. Often said like with a a joking tone, but that can that can maybe, maybe I'm being too honest in this moment right now but yeah un- <laughs> unnecessary criticism is like a very very real of struggle for me that i've i've gotten better at you know kind of keep it in my head um but it's but that's been a slow a slow progression for me so that's on the that's on more the giving end but also i think he's right on the on the receiving end you know i i spend a good deal of time talking with other pastors and to varying degrees it feels like most of them are discouraged. Now, there's a lot of excitement, to be honest, around having to re-strategize if you're, that, if you're wired for that. You know, if, if you kind of get some adrenaline hit from having to, you know, reorganize or think differently or think on your toes or steer, you know, course correct. Some people uh, really, really get amped up by that kind of stuff. But a lot of pastors I know, I mean, I, just, I got into this to just care for people, to just be yeah. with people. And I can't, I can't do that. You know, I, I'm, I think we've even talked about this on the show. I wrote a post a couple, a couple of weeks ago where, you know, a number of people have asked, you know, do you really miss the stage? Do you really miss preaching like to a room mm-hmm. full of people? And don't get me wrong. I, I love preaching more than I ever thought I could love anything. But for me, I said, I, I miss the lobby way more than the stage. Just the mm-hmm. being with people, sharing a cup of coffee, hearing their stories, like doing life together, strategizing and dreaming and, weeping and all, all the messiness, you know, of like, you know, what local church ministry is. And I think a lot of pastors are feeling discouraged, not just because they can't do that, but they also feel like, I don't know that I'm doing a great job of course correcting. And I don't know if I should open or not, or how to answer all these questions or how to manage my social media effectively or how to make my video quality better. You know what I mean? I feel like there's a lot of things pastors are juggling right now. And uh, at least at least based on my very, very small corner of the world, I, I think John is spot on. I think a lot of pastors, I think a lot of leaders in general are, are feeling this way. I, you kind of opened up my soul there a little bit. I feel like um, what you said there, of part of the issue right now for pastors, and I just, the cards on the table for myself is going, I don't know how to do this. Right. <laughs> I don't, I don't know people. Somebody asked me at lunch today. I went out with the lunch with somebody from our church uh, and he asked me, how are things going at the church? And I literally said to him, I'm not really sure how to answer that question. Right. Like, I don't know how to answer that question. And uh, I so agree with you about the difference. I miss having a room full of people as well. And we've started meeting with like 50 people in masks and that's really fun, but also on some level adds to the discouragement because my favorite time every Sunday was to stand at the back door and just shake hands and hug people and laugh. And now I'm standing at the back door and waving to people in masks, you know, and just kind of, uh, I, bye. Yeah. Hey, it's good to see. And you're just kind of like, Oh, that just kind of almost, uh, intensifies the longing. And so uh, what would your word be to pastors? Uh, but also it, it works for other leaders, other people who are discouraged. What would be your word right now? Those people who are dealing with what John Tyson's calls here, deep discouragement, overwhelmed, even doubting their longevity in ministry. Yeah. I mean, I would say a couple of things if I could. One, um, do not, do not be afraid to get the help that you need. If you're at that yeah. place, raise a hand, make sure now, I'm just talking about a close circle of friends, get that too. Uh, but if you feel like you're in, in need for some professional help, get it. 
start your day in the word. I know that sounds really cliche, um, but for me, even like scheduling time to start my day for kneeling prayer and actually doing it like a posture of kneeling, learning you know more and more about how connected our bodies are to the rest of who we are. Um, and then simple things like exercise and all that kind of stuff, but like pursuing margin and being serious about Sabbath and keeping the first things first yeah. and yeah. loving your family. If you have one, you know, these are all kind of one-on-one things that kind of get thrown upside down when like, well, all of our schedules are different now. All my expectations are different. Um, but for me, I, I would say, you know, s- starting first in scripture before you reach for your phone, before you hop on in social media or the news that that's been a really big one. And uh, it can be really, really easy to forget to do, you know, in this kind of new normal that we're all trying to navigate. Absolutely. And I'd encourage you if you're not a pastor, but you go to a church, uh, pray for your pastor. Uh, and I know you and I are pastors, so this could come across as self-serving, but I would say pray and, and yeah. ask them, check in on him or her on how they're doing. Uh, it's strange times and it's strange times for everybody. Uh, and it's strange time for pastors are part of that group. Well, we're glad that you're joining us today here on The Common Good. Excited for a second hour. You're listening to The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. This hour, we're going to talk about Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to talk about a little-known monk and reconsidering evangelism in the midst of a pandemic. You're listening to The Common Good. Welcome back to The Common Good. You're on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Farmer. Really glad to have you joining us today on this Wednesday not hump day we decided past that our executive producer he told us no no more hump day so we're going with just wednesday uh, well in, in his defense he didn't say no more hump day he just had specific thoughts about what should be done to people who say hump day yeah we all knew who he was talking about <laughs> i felt a little on the nose for sure yes it did so i'm just trying out wednesday today now so happy wednesday people we're glad to have you feels weird us. feels super weird does it feels like we're missing something like uh, we're going to go with it we're going to go with it so anyway i hope you're doing well today reminder you can find us on facebook the common good radio show and uh find us online at 1160hope.com and get our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast well uh saw this blog that, that you put uh kind of in the rundown today by a guy by the name of anthony delaney anthony delaney.com uh and it uh it the title of it will catch your attention. It's just titled this, Too Many Naked Christians. So uh, they always tell you, write a headline to get people to click on it. I'm sure that one worked well for people. Uh, <laughs> so let me just read to you a little bit of this, and then uh, let's talk about it. It says, there are too many naked Christians. I was reading through Ephesians chapter 6 today, very familiar passage to most of us who connect regularly with the Bible, uh, and that phrase popped into my head. It struck me how often we just view this as a metaphorical rather than vital. We don't wear what we've been told to wear. So as a reminder, Ephesians 6 is put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand. So here's why we fall. He goes on to write why we don't keep standing, why we go uh, we go out into the battlefield without the armor on. I have this picture of sometimes something like the D-Day landings. Think of saving Private Ryan. 
then through the middle of it comes a guy walking across the beach with a Labrador, totally oblivious. He says, that's the church sometimes, wondering why we get so wounded. Uh, when I was in the police, he writes, I spent a lot of time on PSU support units, my baptism of fire at the age of 18 being the minor strike. Uh, I recall one well-known Christian leader, he later goes on to write, speaking at a conference years ago. I don't need to put on the armor because I never took it off, he says. And I thought that sounded pretty cool. A year later, his marriage was over and he was out of the ministry. Put it on prayerfully, carefully, regularly, like your life depends on it. Because as A.W. Tozer said, the Christian life is more like a battleground than a playground. Have you put on the armor today? Check it's in place now. Armor up. Do it every day. Then step out. Stand firm. Take ground. And he goes on to quote the verse. Let me read it again. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes with the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. I found that convicting today, Ian, especially that story where the guy was like, I never take it off. Like this kind of actively putting on the armor of God. Uh, I'm curious when you read this from Anthony Delaney, uh, what were your thoughts about his talk of, uh, of Ephesians chapter six here? Yeah, a couple of things. I feel like the armor of God is certainly something that Christians can get comfortable talking about without really knowing what they're talking about. You know, it can be one of those sort of church phrases that we are a little inoculated to. I think it was Dallas Willard mm. said something like familiarity breeds unfamiliarity. You can be, you can become so familiar, like really ugly wallpaper in one of your rooms. Like you don't notice anymore because you look at it every day. But when a new friend comes over, they're like, Oh my gosh, what's happening with this wallpaper? I think armor of God language can be like that. But what I, what I find so interesting there's a couple of things that are really interesting about the list. I remember hearing a pastor years ago say, what we can't forget about the armor is that no one could ever put on the armor fully by themselves. Like this would be something that would require other people to help you to fully put it on. And he had this whole other kind of metaphor and illustration about we don't armor up by ourselves. It's not just like me, like in my prayer closet, like ready for the day. It's, it's a, it's a communal thing. The other thing that I remember reading years later was that, a a typical sort of Roman uh, armor system wouldn't have likely had a sword. It would have had a twin javelin and it would have been, he was arguing almost bizarre for a first century audience to hear it. The sword mentioned rather than the twin javelin and his case, and I don't know if this actually holds water theologically or not, but he said um, part of what he thought Paul was communicating here is that this battle is also close combat. Like the javelin, something that you throw and you deal with way over there, but a sword, you know, a sword is, is mentioned for, uh, for close combat. And he went on to talk about, you know, like the sandals, you probably know this, Brian, you're a preacher, but the sandals would have uh, these like hobnails in the bottoms of them. So these like one to three inch spikes, really, they were like first century spikes that uh, would help someone maintain their footing in the midst of like, you know, blood and guts and stuff all over the battlefield. And this idea that being a Christ follower is as much about maintaining our ground Mm -hmm. as it is like going out after something out there. You know, we talk about the victory that we have in Christ, you know, this this rootedness, this being 
this being fitted with these boots that help like anchor us in what is like really true. What's that? You know, the feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. There's not a lot of peace. It seems like in our culture nowadays, and a lot of people far more ready for a battle. You know what I mean? So to yeah. me, I, I just found a lot of the, I'm like reading this list again through like, you know, t- 2020 eyes and uh, having all sorts of other feelings about it, which I, th- I think is really interesting. What what stood out? You used the word convicting. What about it was convicting to you? Uh, so the, the daily portion that he talked about, I think was good. And the, uh, I think what gets me uh, as I was reading this list again is, uh, sometimes I think, uh, we as pastors or there's authors that can really overdo kind of the, we're in a fight, we're in a battle, like, right. That kind of like macho language. Like sometimes it's like, okay, turn it down a little bit enough already. Right. Uh, but Ephesians, like this is the Bible, right? This is them going, no, it's a battle. And, and so there you're just reminded so often for me, what I struggle with, uh, not just in ministry, but in life as as someone who's grown up in the church and been a Christian my whole life is just this whole concept of complacency. It's like, I don't know, is there really a battle going on? Like, is this really uh, that important of a deal? Like things seem to be going okay. And so then to read Ephesians 6 and be reminded again, no, you got to stand firm. I like that. I'd never heard, to be honest with you, that twin javelin, as you said, versus the sword and close combat. Not only does that preach, I think that's a that that is that is something to ponder. I think that's a good point, and uh, you know that that always, um, you, you know, the gospel and and the being uh, having the belt of truth, like this kind of imagery. I think it shakes me at least out of my complacency to go, man. There, this as A. W. Tozer said, it is more battleground than playground. There is an enemy. Yeah. I've got to be there for my brothers and sisters. That's the importance of community. I can't do this by myself. Like all of that of what you're talking about, I think is so important here as we read Ephesians chapter six. Um, well, I, I think it's important too because part of what he's getting at here is it's not about avoiding the battle; it's about standing in it, right? right. And, and if we don't right. know we're in a battle, we're losing. You know what I mean? And the ultimate reminder that like people are not our enemy. Your enemy is not your ex or your supervisor or your coworker or your neighbor or your sibling. Like the Bible speaks of non Christians as like captives right he's making it very clear that we know like who our enemy is and also who our king is and what we fight for what we fight with you know i think that that's that to me is what really kind of undergirds the whole thing and that's always really really important to remember yeah so a powerful passage out of ephesians chapter six uh this blog by anthony delaney we up at our facebook page go give it a read we would love to know your thoughts well coming up Uh, Another blog that says this, what a little known monk can teach us about work. That's coming up next year on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Trump. Thanks for joining us on this Wednesday afternoon. Uh, Before we jump into this uh, fascinating blog about a little-known monk and what this monk can teach us about work, let me uh, tell you something that's going on here at the station. You know, seeing Israel is a lifetime memory, but taking a Bible prophecy tour of Israel could change your life. So right now, you can enter for a chance to win a Bible prophecy tour to Israel next March with Dr. Robert Jeffers. So enter today at 1160hope.com, keyword Israel. That's 1160hope.com, keyword Israel. 
So, Ian, this uh, this blog post here of what a little-known monk can teach us about work. You found this one. I'm fascinated by this article. What's it talking about? Let me just get into it. It's by Nathaniel Williams. He says, you and I tend to segment our lives into categories of work and leisure, sacred and secular. Sunday really has much to do with Monday and vice versa. Even if we want to begin the process of integrating faith with our work, we have so few role models to look up to, which I'll pause and say, that's a great insight. Like I've long felt like these things shouldn't be divided, but then my thought would often stop there. Like, I don't know who's written about this, who who, who can I kind of look to to kind of gain some more insight here? He says, let me tell you about a monk named Brother Lawrence. Brother Lawrence was a Carmelite monk in France during the 1600s. We know little about his life except that he was uneducated, served briefly as a soldier, and later became a monk. Though his life was unremarkable on its surface, he profoundly influenced his peers in the monastery. The practice of the presence of God is a collection of his writings and thoughts, which, by the way, I'll pause again. If you've not read it, it's really short. It's really good. You probably had to read it in undergrad, didn't you? Absolutely. And it's so good. People, you need to read the practice of the presence of God. And super evergreen, by the way, maybe more so now than ever. He says, what strikes me most about the book is how Brother Lawrence weaves his dynamic prayer life into the fabric of the everyday, including his work. We can learn a few lessons from his example. And then he gives a list, which makes Brian very, very happy. So happy. So so he says, number one, we can fellowship with God as we work. Father Joseph de Beaufort. Did I say that right? I think so. Uh, That's impressive. (laughs) Who compiled the writings, describes Brother Lawrence's work routine. He writes that when he had thus in prayer filled his mind with great sentiments of the infinite being, he went to his work appointed in the kitchen for he was a cook to the society there having first considered uh, severely. That's not the right word. Severally. Several. There it is. Several things that his office required and when how each thing was to be done. He spent all the intervals of his time as well before as after his work in prayer that when he began his business, he said to God, with a filial trust in him. Oh, my God, since thou art with me and I must now in obedience to thy commandments apply my mind to these outward things, I beseech thee to grant me the grace to continue in thy presence. And to this end, do thou prosper me with thy assistance, receive all my works and possess uh, and possesses. Uh, oh, boy, possess <laughs> all my affections. As he proceeded in his work, he continued his familial conversations with his maker, employing his grace and offering to him all his action so that's kind of like the premise actually was yep. he was doing what a lot of us would you know consider menial work right humble work at the very least and he saw this like as an opportunity to be increasingly mindful of the presence of god in his midst even there and that's kind of where you know, a lot of his writing even began right. yeah it's such a good book uh let me read number two before that we've talked about how Ian and i are doing these uh shows from our homes if you could hear my dog going crazy that was crazy <laughs> my yeah, dog I sure could. Like, I sure can. she's in like in the whole other level of the house by herself and just went nuts anyway that little uh little look into our lives number two on this article it says this we can repent of our workplace failures brother lawrence was still human Though he intended to work well for God's glory, sometimes he fell short of those expectations. In response, Lawrence didn't mope or deny his failures. He freely admitted them, repented of them, and continued to live and work in God's presence. We read this. When he had finished, he examined himself how he had discharged his duty. If he found well, he returned thanks to God. If otherwise, he asked pardon. And without being discouraged, he set his mind right again and continued his exercise of the presence of God 
as if he had never deviated from it. Thus said he, by rising after my falls and by frequently renewed acts of faith and love, I am come to a state wherein it would be as difficult for me not to think of God as it was to first to accustom myself to it. See, after completing a task, Brother Lawrence evaluated himself and his work. If he worked well, he thanked God. If not, he promptly repented and continued about his life and work. And we can do the same. When we work well, we can thank God for his grace. When we've been lazy, prideful, selfish, or otherwise worked poorly, we can repent and accept God's forgiveness. And then lastly, number three, we can follow God even uh, when work is stressful, which like we've mentioned a lot on the show lately is probably true for a lot of us. He says, these principles may seem a tad unrealistic to us, but brother Lawrence practiced them even in the busiest times of his work. So here's again, uh, what's written from him. And it was observed that in all the greatest hurry of business in the kitchen, he still preserved his recollection and heavenly mindedness. He was never hasty nor loitering, but he did each thing in its season with an even uninterrupted composure and tranquility of spirit. The time of business, he said, does not with me differ from the time of prayer. Ooh, that's a good line. And in the noise and clatter of my kitchen, while several persons are at the same time calling for different things, I possess God in as great a tranquility as if I were upon my knees at the blessed sacrament. When we also do our work with, quote, heavenly mindedness, our stresses may become less burdensome, our work less tedious, and our ever-growing task list more manageable. We do not work alone. We work in the presence of of our Heavenly Father. When we follow Brother Lawrence's example, we can do ordinary tasks in an extraordinary way. We can experience the presence of God even and especially when we work, which I think is such an important, there's a whole other direction we could head here. You know, people often, I think, overlook the fact that prior to the fall in the garden, God gives Adam and Eve a task. He gives them work. Work is not the result of sin, the fall. It was a part of this sacred relationship between humans and God. He says, here's the garden. Now go dream, cultivate, develop, create like he's inviting us to be co-collaborators in these things. And I think, you know, when Paul talks about whatever you're doing, eating and drinking and elsewhere, he uses some different language. He's saying all of that should be done as an act of worship. And I think we get that out of whack sometimes. Like I have like my Jesus activities here with my Jesus friends at the Jesus space and the Jesus time. And then I have like the rest of my life. And I think, Scripture actually does not really seem to see this sacred secular divide that we so often want to cling to. And I think Brother Lawrence just understood that in a really remarkable way. I love that at the very beginning of the uh, blog when it said, uh, Brother Lawrence did not leave God in his prayer closet each morning. Right, (laughs) right. I think that imagery is so important. Maybe with the last minute we have here. Uh, talk to the person out there who's like, yeah, I'm a different person at work like this. I'm the opposite of this. What might be a step? What might be uh, one thing that they can do to kind of get more in alignment with, uh, you know, what you talked about there about you doing everything for the glory of God? What might be a uh, one word of advice for them? I, I mean, I would first say I totally get it. I, I've had a number of jobs where I've not been proud of the person I was while on shift. I can absolutely commiserate with that. This, the second thing I would say, maybe again, seems obvious, but one of the things that really changed for me, even when I was, you know, just working a coffee shop was a simple prayer from my car to the actual store. Like God, help me to see people the way that you see them and give me words of encouragement. Give me words to speak, you know, just a simple, just being in that mindset, I realized, and that was just a 30 second walk. It wasn't some big grandiose, you know, spiritual act, but just reminding myself and, and entering into, okay, this, this new environment with a different level of awareness 
And honestly, and there's a number of really great books about uh, work and worship. And, you know, there's even a um, yeah. commercial on our station that talks about they have the same root words. So that's super interesting. I think there's a lot that we can read and learn from. Listen to sermons. There's some great stuff on Right Now Media about how do we better right. kind of integrate work and worship. Because I think it's, yeah, I think it's really important. Yeah, and right now, media, they have a great conference, a whole conference called Work as Worship. Uh-huh. Uh, that is that is really good. So uh, a really important day-to-day topic. We'd encourage you to go give that blog a read uh, about Brother Lawrence at our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. Well, coming up next, we're going to read another article from the friend of the show, Ed Stetzer, about evangelism, reconsidering our approach in a pandemic. That's next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Back to the common good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, joined as always by Ian Simpkins. Glad to have you with us on this Wednesday evening. Uh, as a reminder, find us on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show. There we put up articles and interviews. Uh, love to get your feedback on things. Uh, also at Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. Online at 1160hope.com and get the podcast wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe, rate, review. That really does help us. We are grateful for those of you who do listen to the podcast. So uh, somebody that we quote often and read often on this show, so much so that we've had him on before as well, that we uh, affectionately refer to him as a friend of the show. Uh, Ed Stetzer. <laughs> how, 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 how do you do that unaffectionately? Today. How do you unaffectionately refer to someone as friend of the show? I don't. I don't know, but I want him to know ours is with great mm. affection. <laughs> That's a good clarification. Uh, Ed writes uh, on his blog called The Exchange at Christianity Today. Uh, he writes about evangelism. Evangelism, it says, reconsidering our approach in a pandemic, pursuing creative personal opportunities for evangelism during COVID-19. Uh, let me get us into this. Many churches have found effective and creative ways to be on mission and to engage in evangelism during the coronavirus crisis. At the same time, some evangelism approaches have been affected just like church life, uh, and let's face it, just like all of life, has been disrupted. If you aren't a scholar or researcher in the field of evangelism, you may not realize the many ways it is carried out. On the one hand, we all understand that evangelism involves the proclamation of the good news of the gospel and an invitation for men and women to respond by grace through faith to that invitation of the gospel. There is biblical gospel content involved, right? It says, how are they to believe in in him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Romans chapter 10, verse 14. And so now it's going to go into the different ways that we do evangelism, the things that we know about. One is mass evangelism. He says, For example, many people are familiar with the category of mass evangelism. Uh, At Wheaton College, Ed directs the Billy Graham Center. The most famous evangelist in history was Billy Graham. Masses of people in large arenas hearing the gospel illustrates a form of mass evangelism. Uh, Evangelism reigns as long as somebody is telling others about Jesus and how to respond. But there are other means of mass evangelism, like open air evangelism. That's also in the category of mass evangelism evangelism as an aside and you ever, did you ever go to a billy graham crusade at any point I, in your life? I don't think i ever did i think he might have spoken at a promise keepers once i was at is that a thing could have been possibly mm-hmm. i went to a billy graham crusade in new jersey once it was something man it was crazy i was in junior high and you're sitting there like i've given my life to jesus many times but i'm going <laughs> going going where 
to the to the front, like the whole stadium just starts walking towards the stadium. Oh, you gave your life to Jesus again. Wild. I got gotcha. you. You were double dipping. Okay, like uh, double, triple. You know, Billy Graham said, "Come." I was, I was, I was heading to gotcha. that altar. <laughs> so, the next one, small group evangelism. This has become an increasingly used tool today, even as small groups have become an important part of culture, both inside and outside the church. Alpha is probably the best known. Another example is Christianity explored. But there's other categories. There's also ministry or service evangelism, where people are served or helped in Jesus's name. This ranges from disaster relief to, quote, service servant evangelism, popularized in the book Conspiracy of kindness. There's also literary literature evangelism where people pass out tracts or Bible or Bibles. These are all parts of what evangelism can and should be. There's church evangelism. He says for a time, one could argue that the most commonly engaged form of evangelism in the Western world was church evangelism focused on the whole church being engaged in reaching their community, often employing a variety of types. This is kind of your invite people to church, the seeker movement. This was church evangelism. But then he says the COVID-19 curve. But here's the thing I don't want you to miss, he says. So many of these common ways of evangelism, uh, like literature evangelism, church evangelism, mass evangelism, aren't going to work the same in a pandemic. People are generally not going to take a piece of literature for someone. People aren't going to rush to a meeting. They're not going to head to a church. So here's the thing I want you to hear. While it's true that some doors we often use have been closed, this is not the first time that doors have been closed for different reasons. In a lot of countries, Christians couldn't do mass evangelism because they'd get arrested. Opportunities change during certain eras and historic moments in the church. In the midst of the coronavirus pandemic, I want to recognize that new kinds of evangelism, or more precisely, returning to older ways, have now become the front and center evangelistic approaches for us. So let me pause there. Uh, I think we're all going to agree with this, but you've seen this, right? Uh, The ways that you and I especially uh, were taught as high school kids to do evangelism aren't going to work now. Uh, We've talked about how they're not working in general in our culture, but now in a pandemic, they're just out of bounds. You can't do them anymore. Uh, I don't think that's 100% true. No, I think that there's probably ways for all of the ones mentioned to still be executed. You'll probably see them diminish or decrease, but yeah. 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 I don't, I don't think they're, they're uh, out of bounds necessarily. He goes on to say, here's the thing. We're still seeing our neighbors. Coffee shops are open in many places. We're talking to people over Zoom. We're seeing neighbors taking walks in our communities. Personal and small group evangelism are going to be the key tools to sharing the gospel for at least during the history of this pandemic. For too long, we depended on the pastor or the evangelist. We've de-emphasized personal evangelism. In other words, the pandemic may take us back, though, to the early church's practice. Michael Green in Evangelism in the Early Church observed the lay people were the, quote, informal evangelists who spread the gospel widely. In contrast to the present day, when Christianity is highly intellectualized and dispensed by professional clergy, uh, in the early days, the faith was spontaneously spread by informal evangelists and had its greatest appeal among the working classes. So Ed goes this way. He ends this way. It's time to return to the Great Commission to make disciples of all peoples for all of Jesus's disciples, our Lord called to fulfill this mission. Uh, So this whole concept of, especially in a time of pandemic, it's an opportunity to go back to personal evangelism. I guess, Ian, I'd ask you, 
Uh, do you find what he wrote here to be compelling? Do you think that this is something uh, that even our churches would find compelling about, hey, this is a this is an opportunity in the midst of a pandemic uh, for all of us to take up the mission as opposed to churches or mass evangelism. Yeah, I think else. some people will see it as an opportunity. Others will see it as a duty. I don't know that opportunity necessarily is the language that most compels everybody. I think it certainly does those who are more, I don't know, we would say like apostolically wired or entrepreneurially wired. The the opportunity mantra is like, yes, this is an opportunity. I think other people are feeling the weight of um, this is in some way like my duty or there is this great need. You know, we know that people are are experiencing all kinds of heightened levels, not only of like general fear, anxiety, but also like trauma. We've mentioned earlier in other segments on the show about um, domestic violence is at an all time high. We've talked about human trafficking. We've talked even about you know, how much drinking has gone. I, I think those are chances for us to, to in a lot of ways, be the hands and feet in a ways that like a lot of times institutional churches couldn't be or weren't perceived by the general public as, as even, you know, playing a role in that. I think, um, yeah, I think this is a really unique time and, and Stetzer has not disappointed. He's been, I think with most of what he's written, pretty prolific, pretty uh, prophetic in his timing. Like, Hey, let's not, I know a lot of us are maybe getting lulled into this new rhythm, but let's not forget though, like the, the call in charge of the church, the church universal um, to be yes. the church and to take on some of that, you know, what they call the informal evangelism, and some of the individual responsibilities I think is yeah as important now as it's ever been. Yeah. So thankful for Ed Stetzer and his writing here at Christianity today. You can find it up at our Facebook page. We're going to end the show coming up next. Uh, with something we've been doing over the past few months, just sharing some good news from the Good News Network. We're going to end the show with some good news coming up next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. We're grateful for you joining us today. It's been a fun show. If you missed our interview, particularly with Jim Dennison in the first hour, uh, go to the Facebook page or the podcast. It'll be well worth your time. Uh, as he talks about civility and the need for civility, especially in a culture that's increasingly not civil. Uh, and so I would encourage you to do that. Well, uh, one of the ways in the midst of the pandemic that with all the bad news and, and hard things we've had to talk about on a daily basis, one of the things we've enjoyed doing, it's kind of a palate cleanser, is to end the show with just good news. And so a month or two ago, I think, Ian, you introduced us to the goodnewsnetwork.org. Uh, and it is Brian. That was like that was like everything's a month, six months ago. right now. And uh, it's like where I grew up in New Jersey. Oh, if you point. ever ask anyone how far away you live, it's always forty five minutes. Doesn't matter. <laughs> it's all the same. Uh, and so uh, these okay. are. It's an entire website just uh, dedicated to stories that put a smile on your face. Just some good news. Uh, and so we're going to end that way today. So I'm going to let you go first, Ian. Choose whichever story you would like. Yep. Oh, yep. wow. Really? A lot of latitude here today. <laughs> My goodness, you're much too kind to me. All right, I'll just do the first one then because I'm a rule follower. Uh, this says, 
Seniors given free video devices with easy to use buttons so they can talk to family for the first time in months. I'm already going to love this one. Seniors who are socially distancing to stay healthy during the pandemic are now gaining much needed companionship thanks to ultra loud, easy to use devices that connect them directly to loved ones. The Dreamweaver Foundation has provided 300 free Facebook portals to seniors in nursing care homes in Nebraska and Iowa. And the grateful reactions have ranged from tears of joy to an overwhelming sense of relief. Most seniors who received a portal were connected to loved ones with a clear picture and sound for the first time in months. The eight-year-old Omaha-based nonprofit usually grants wishes to seniors like hot air balloon rides or race car driving, but that all stopped when COVID-19 hit. We still wanted to serve seniors in a special way, said Sherry Massney, Dreamweaver Foundation Executive Director. Many families had been resorting to window visits or calls on smartphones, which can be both expensive and difficult for seniors to operate. I love really this good. story. This is another one of those like solution-based stories where I'm just so glad people are thinking through these types of things. I have no idea how they were able to afford that many Facebook portals. But y'all, you just got to go look at the story because like the photos and the videos alone are, are worth it. And it's so Pro- amazing. Props to Dreamweaver. People who just figure out solutions to problems. <laughs> and uh, It's really good. Uh, next one. Yeah, right. A woman who lost wedding ring shortly after getting married rediscovers it days before her 40th anniversary. An English, an English woman who lost her wedding ring in the garden almost four decades ago has just found it buried in the soil just days before her 40th anniversary. 65-year-old Paula Walter lost the precious wedding band back in 1983 when she was playing catch with her son outside their home in Plymouth, Devon. The ring flew off her finger as they were frolicking in the garden, and despite conducting a lengthy search of the grounds with a metal detector, it was never found. Paula who tied the knot with her now 73-year-old husband, Joe, in, uh, on uh, August 28, 1980, was heartbroken by the disappearance of her cherished 18-karat gold band. My house backs into a woodland, and I thought possibly that the ring flew in there. I thought it was gone forever. Over the years, whenever we've been in the garden or out there, I've always said, hey, have a look for the ring, but we never found it. To her delight, however, the missing ring was finally rediscovered last month. Paula's lucky break came when she hired a local landscaping company to clean up her garden a few days before her wedding anniversary. Uh, Although the yard had been dug up multiple times, the gardeners struck gold. They called me out into the garden a while later saying they had a surprise for me and they handed me my wedding ring. It was in the garden where I was standing and where I'd been playing ball with my son all those years ago. I was so shocked, but incredibly grateful. It's wonderful to have it back. What a cool surprise. I, I'm just mostly surprised that uh, people actually frolic. I, I didn't like know that, that was a you thing. Said that word frolicking there, yes. P- people, people, I didn't realize people outside of stories did that. All right, this next one: millennials are getting handier, not handsier. <laughs> they're getting handier around the home since lockdown measures began. I uh, just wanted to clarify there. Millennials are getting handier around the home since COVID-19 lockdown measures began. In fact, the poll of 2000 homeowners found that compared to other generations, millennials have been the busiest with 81% having tackled a home improvement project since March conducted by one poll in conjunction with blowtorch manufacturer. <laughs> Bur- Burns-O-Matic. Burns-O-Matic. <laughs> Why are they in conjunction with this poll? The survey examined the various home improvement <laughs> projects that American homeowners have completed. 
while stay-at-home orders have been in effect and why they chose to take them on in the first place. Two-thirds of the respondents say they tackled their projects to save money, while 49% simply needed something to keep themselves busy during the lockdown. Overall, the average homeowner has attempted four different home improvement projects since March and saved an estimated $160 simply by attempting to complete a project themselves. From painting around the house, 32%, and working on landscaping projects outside, 29%, to re-caulking, 27%, and retiling kitchens and bathrooms, 24%, homeowners have kept themselves busy these past six months. Brian, have you done any of those? Uh, I know about those. I did. I When the pandemic started, I had this long list of stuff I was going to get done, and I got some of them done. As you know, I'm not a very uh, uh, handy guy, but... I was able to get some done. I did. I get where this is coming from. How about you? You built a treehouse, right? I, yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to comment. I mean, I guess a little bit of, a little bit of lawn keeping, yes. yard keeping, but yes. it's, if you saw it, you'd be like, really? This is you after you've worked on it? It's not, not impressive. Hey, you have a two and a one year old at home. So you've, you've got some. Thanks, man. Thank you. You and John Tyson. Encouraging. I appreciate it. Uh, Let me do this one from NPR. It's a little different, but I saw this and I was blown away by this. Winner of French Scrabble title does not speak French. Uh, The Scrabble career of Nigel Richards went from great to astounding this week after he won the French language Scrabble World Championships. A New England, a New England, New Zealand native. He has won several English language titles. His new victory follows weeks of studying a French dictionary. He doesn't speak French at all. He just learned the words. He won't know what any of them mean. Wouldn't be able to carry out a conversation in French, uh, I wouldn't think. It was only in late May that he began his quest to win the French world title. That's when he set out about memorizing the French Scrabble Dictionary, and he won the whole thing. Tell me that's not amazing. <laughs> I I mean, I can't. I can't tell you that, Brian, because it is that amazing. Is. All right. You got the last one. This one's, uh, this one's a cute one. Okay, so uh, this is the last one out of Good News Network. Again, if you were not here for the beginning of the segment, goodnewsnetwork.org is a website worth bookmarking and uh, visiting regularly. Adorable boy with a cleft lip finds his perfect match, a puppy with the same condition. Y'all just got to see this photo. When a young father went to the local animal shelter to look at chickens, the last thing he was expecting to come home with was a puppy. But when he saw a black and white pup with a cleft lip, just like his son's, oh, man, I'm going to get emotional just reading this. He knew the sweet dog would make a perfect addition to the family. As you can see from the photos, little Bentley, who's now age two, was so delighted to meet his new best friend. These uh, There's more, but these pictures are amazing. Bentley's mom, Ashley Boyers, is excited about the budding friendship between the pair, too. She explained to Click on Detroit that seeing her toddler son, quote, have something in common with a puppy means a lot because he can grow up and understand that he and his puppy both have something that they can share in common. As for the team at Michigan's Jackson County Animal Shelter, they're equally happy to see the instant love between the two-month-old pup and Bentley. Hats off. I love this story so much. That's a great story. So hopefully that put a smile on your face. Go to thegoodnewsnetwork.org and you can find more stories like that. We're glad that you joined us today. If you missed any of the show, including our interview with Jim Dennison, go ahead and subscribe to the podcast and you can go back and listen to those. We hope you join us tomorrow. Have a great rest of your night. For Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good. You're on AM 1160. Hope for your life.